0: Let's just jump right into this. The uh, epistle to the Ephesians is, to me, uh, a captivating letter. And why it's captivating to me is that it is more than just us reading a letter written to some church somewhere long ago. It actually is a letter that unfolds like a cosmic drama that is woven with threads of divine warfare sounds awesome already, celestial tension, uh, spiritual truths, all of these things are woven within the, uh, the the fabric of the book of Ephesians. In exploring this, the, the contours of this book, uh, we are beckoned into a narrative that transcends the ordinary. Again, this is not just a letter written to some churches somewhere a long time ago telling them to get their act together or something like that. It actually is a letter that plunges into the extraordinary extraordinary depths of spiritual realities. And so today, we're beginning a journey, a 12-week journey, through what I will call a mystical tapestry. Uh, of the book of Ephesians, and it unravels uh, some of the most timeless truths that we as Christians need to understand, And, and those will unfold as the weeks unfold. So I encourage you to be here for each piece of it or to be able to watch online if you happen to have to miss. At the heart of the book of Ephesians is a profound paradox, and here's the paradox. It's a tension between two ages. Ephesians portrays the interplay of the old age, uh, still shackled by fallen powers, and a new age that's inaugurated in Christ through the dynamic power of his spirit, of God's spirit. This tension defines the Christian journey, and I think all of us actually have experienced this. It prompts questions that echo in each one of our souls, right? Why, as the people of God, do we encounter pain and loss in a world that's supposedly under God's rule? How many of you have asked those questions? Why, why do we have to struggle? Isn't God king? Isn't he ruling and reigning? Isn't he set up above all principalities and powers? Right? So why do we struggle with these things? Why does creation in the scripture, why does creation groan in its brokenness? And do our longing hearts for answers, do our longing hearts betray a dissatisfaction with the customary answers to life's puzzling questions? I think they do in many ways. See, in this cosmic drama, the narrative pivots between uh, the times, tracing a crossover of these ages. The Spirit's presence, a testament to the new age contends with the lingering influence of the old age known as the time of the flesh. So throughout the series, we're going to hear this—the the, the time of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh or the works of the flesh, right? And we're going to uh, juxtapose those with the things of God's spirit and his kingdom. This existential struggle, though, of believers... In this kind of cosmic tension is actually what calls for, and this is gonna be interesting to many of you, it's what calls for an apocalypse, but not the way you think. Apocalypse, in its right understanding or right definition, is actually simply a life giving revelation. That's what apocalypse means. It doesn't mean some obscure book that nobody can understand, <laughs> right? It doesn't mean weird, uh, fanciful creatures that are coming down from heaven, right? It, do- it doesn't always mean that, at least, right? It actually means a life-giving revelation. And this revelation elucidates uh, a perplexing journey through a world where the spiritual and material realms converge, Right? In times of intense crisis, such as uh, threats to national security in Israel's history, the need for apocalyptic literature arose. This literary genre served as an apologetic. It addressed profound existential questions. How can we, as the beloved people of God, experience oppression by God's enemies while acknowledging that God is still sovereign and in control? Shouldn't that preclude or exclude us from this? Apocalyptic functioned as a means to relieve the sharp tension created by the disconnect between Israel's identity and their intense suffering, right? To give you an answer for what in the world is happening. Providing answers during times of crisis and suffering, that's what we're all asking for. That's actually what an apocalyptic letter was, and that's what the letter to the Ephesians is actually intended to do for, this, for Christians, just the same. Now, just a brief note on authorship. Uh, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from, from uh, church fathers and, and really uh, brilliant minds that wrestled with the authorship of the book of Ephesians, because... In some sense, the authorship is debated. Uh, John Chrysostom found it to be, quote-unquote, difficult to understand, and therefore it was a little bit odd for uh, Pauline literature. Origen said that Paul had, and listen to this, because many of you will actually relate to this with everything Paul writes, right? quote, heaped up more obscure ideas and mysteries unknown to the ages in this epistle than all the others. Doesn't that sound fun? You're like, hey, we're going we're gonna to get into this. It's weird. Yay for us, right? Or as Erasmus believed, uh, he believed that when Peter in 2 Peter 3.16 said that there were things that Paul wrote that were difficult to understand, Erasmus thought it was the book of Ephesians, okay? Uh, which does make sense to some. So why is this important? Why is the authorship actually important? For two reasons. Number one, if anyone does actually debate the Pauline authorship, that's why. Because it's weird. Because it's apocalyptic. Because it's got questions that we still don't really have answers to. And number two... We are not alone in finding, this is important for you, we as modern day Christians are not alone in finding apocalyptic literature like the book of Revelation, like the book of Ephesians, difficult to understand. Does that make you feel any better? It should make you feel better. Uh, It might not, but it should make you feel better because this stuff is challenging to understand at times. So Again, most would conclude that Paul is the writer of the book of Ephesians. It has a little bit of debate attached to it, and why is because it's a very strange letter and filled with all kinds of uh, language that is a bit obscure, I would say, for the Apostle Paul. Many theologians conclude that the book of Ephesians is written more like what Paul would write if he were writing a sermon. If you read the book of Ephesians, it sounds a lot like a sermon. It's got prayers. It's got this grandiose language. It sounds a lot like the book of Hebrews in many ways. It's got that, it's got that sermon-esque approach to it, right? So we have this understanding of who wrote it, the recipients uh, of this letter, and why send this letter to the Ephesians at all if that is in fact their recipient or the recipient? Frank Thielman, who is uh, the main contributor of the Baker exegetical commentary on the book of Ephesians, writes this. And I'm pointing this out always for a reason. He says, much hangs then on the solution to this textual problem. What's the problem? Who is this written to? That's the problem. And unfortunately, it is one of the most difficult textual problems in the New Testament. And therefore, he provides little to no answer. Doesn't that make you feel better? Nope, (laughs) right? You're like, wait a second. Okay, so we don't quite know. I guess it's Paul, but it could maybe possibly not be. And who's it written to? Who knows? Very complicated. We're starting this series off on a good note, right? So why does that matter? Why do these questions matter? And why do these obscure answers matter? It, It matters, number one, for the reason that you can live your life trusting in the inspiration of God's word and the truthfulness of God's word and have questions. Did you know that? You better know that because you all have them, whether you knew it or not, right? You have questions. You can believe in its truth. You can believe that it's inspired and still go, I don't get it. That's hope right there. And second, the reason why these questions matter is because it actually begins, if you will, to affect how we interpret what we read. So why does it matter? The teachings of Paul provide, uh, the teachings Paul provides in the book of Ephesians actually take on different levels of meaning, different levels of importance, if in fact the letter was just written to a general audience. So let me just kind of go into it just a little bit uh, for you. Uh, Many scholars conclude that it is far too generic uh, for its instruction to apply to a church in Ephesus that Paul spent years investing in. Why would he be general? Why would he be generic? Why wouldn't he be specific? So that leads people to conclude the idea is that it is a, a cyclical letter. So this letter was actually given to the churches of the region. Why would that ever matter? Well, think about this. When you get into the text of Ephesians and you, and you start to uncover, say, the household codes that we'll be talking about towards the end of this series, when you talk about the household codes, the challenge that you run into is if this was a specific letter written to a specific people because of specific problems, the way maybe the letter to the Galatians is written, or maybe even First Corinthians— If it is a specific people, then it is possible that those teachings only apply to the Ephesians. Now that's hard to wrestle with because we go, but isn't God's word true and isn't it effectual and doesn't, doesn't it benefit everybody? It can, but remember, you're not, the, you're not the who this was written to, necessarily, okay? It's written for you, but it's not necessarily written to you. And so it's important to realize that if it's generic or if it is specific, it changes the meaning. If, in fact, the letter to the Ephesians, which is attested to... Uh, the letter to the Ephesians not being to the Ephesians, which is attested to by the earliest manuscripts not actually having the phrase to the church of Ephesus, right? Uh, Since that's absent, if it is generic and it is to a bunch of churches, that actually means that all of the instruction applies to all of the churches. Why? Because they're all getting the instruction. They're all receiving this. They're all reading it going, oh, this is how husbands should be. This is how wives should be. This is how children should be. This is how slaves should be. Does that make sense to you? Now, I'm not gonna settle that for you I'm not gonna settle the question, but if it is generic to all churches, then the instruction applies to all churches. If it is specific, then the instruction might only apply to that church. That's what I want you to understand. I'm not gonna solve this for you, but I want you to realize that that is a debate, and I want you to take heart that having these debates is okay. See, in the theological world and in the scholarly world, the unknowns don't shake people's faith necessarily in the general church world when people go it's not black and white i can't know for a fact that this is literal or figurative or this or that people panic there's no reason to panic god's word is still true god's word is still authoritative god's word is still inspired and we can show you the proof of those things it is all of those things it just means we have to grow amen okay So, that said, as we navigate our modern challenges, Ephesians can, and I believe does, provide answers to the enduring questions about suffering, the questions about identity, the questions about coexistence of divine sovereignty with human will and hardship. I believe that this celestial narrative encourages contemporary readers to find hope, to cultivate discernment, and this transformative power in the midst of life's complexities. I believe it speaks to all of those things. I believe that Ephesians also offers timeless wisdom for navigating the tensions between the seen and the unseen realms, okay? How many of you think that everything that is, that you can see, is all that exists? I hope not. You're in a church. That would be weird, right? You believe in other things. As a matter of fact, even the person that is a naturalist, even the person that is, that is obsessed with what they see is what they believe, actually betrays their own belief by believing in a thing called consciousness. You can't see consciousness. As a matter of fact, no scientist, no mind in the world actually understands where it comes from. We just believe we're conscious, <laughs> Right? Sometimes I wish I wasn't, but we believe that we're conscious, right? We can't explain it. It's an unseen thing that we believe as true. The same could be said about love and many, many, many other things, okay? So the book of Ephesians, although there are questions and although there are challenges, is a, an apocalyptic book in, in a sense, and it is written to deal with the timeless uh, challenges that face us as humans, the tension between the scene in the unseen realm. Ephesians is not, all of that understood, Ephesians is not merely a theological treatise, but instead a grand polemic or an argument, an argument against God's enemies. It resonates with the echoes of divine warfare, which is why I get so excited about it. This distinctive feature, this kind of divine warfare uh, feature, culminates in the powerful exhortation exhortation found at the end of Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. This passage is reverberating with combat motifs and, and cosmic significance. But for more than you think, for reasons that are far more than you think, listen to what Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 says. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. This is an amazing picture, but guess what? That amazing picture is not written to one individual. Even when putting on the armor of God, God is communicating to the entire world body of christ he views you not he views you not as little independent lone ranger army soldiers running a war against the devil he views you as a roman legion that is together fighting against something far bigger than physical realities a spiritual world or a spiritual war we, of course, have made such a mess of passages like this. Why? Because we didn't realize this was an apocalyptic. Because we didn't realize that there, were more, there was more going on in the letter than what we read. We've missed this because we've bought into what some theologians believe Ephesians is. A giant doctrinal statement of, of uh, theological principles and ideas so you can create some form of a systematic theology for yourself doesn't appear that's what Paul's even aiming at. It appears Paul is telling you a story. Paul is painting a picture, a narrative, in which you and I play this huge, huge part. To comprehend the nuances of Ephesians, we have to grasp the ancient world's practice of employing divine warfare imagery as a rhetorical tool. And the traditions of old nations showcase their deity's supremacy by divine warfare motifs, okay? So this is, this is in everything, right? One example of this would be found in the historical narratives of ancient Egypt. The pharaohs, uh, believed to be god kings, often depicted military victor- victories and battles as what? Divine intervention, The gods were on their side, emphasizing the favor and the support of their gods in securing triumph over enemies. This is why every ancient myth is is filled with these ideas. The hieroglyphs and the inscriptions on temple walls celebrated these events. Uh, They portrayed the, the rulers as chosen by the gods and victorious in divine conflicts. And if you think that the people writing the Bible are not aware of that, and willing to employ that, you don't understand the Bible. You're understanding it in a 21st century lens, right? Israel also did this, affirming it's God's reign over all creation, asserting victories over rival deities. The foundational elements of this rhetorical framework uh, help us to see uh, what is really happening. And they're shown to us by by brilliant scholars. Tremper Longman is one, Dan Reed. And they show that they always follow a specific sequence in Israel. Kingship, conflict and victory, celebration, victory shout, temple building, and blessing. And repeatedly we have the same thing that goes... I love it when you can detect the patterns or see the patterns within Scripture because what it does is it makes you realize that the writers are doing something far bigger than, hey, just wanted to say, I'm over in Rome, I'm doing this, hope the church is going well. It's not what's happening in these letters. Not at all what's happening in these letters. Ephesians mirrors this structure, integrating the themes of conflict and victory into the narrative, right? Uh, this celestial drama unfolds as Paul contends that Christ, in Ephesians one 20 through 20-23, has been exalted above all powers and authorities, asserting cosmic lordship over the present evil age. Here's what Ephesians 1, verses 20-23 through 30, 23 says. He, God, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Again, this proclamation sets the stage for a divine polemic. This is an attack, this is an argument against the enemies of God. This assertion of God's triumph in Christ over the forces of evil seeks to dismantle their hold on the world and assert that he is in charge of his good creation, which I think is fascinating. In a sense, what is happening with Paul's letter to the Ephesians is exactly what Moses is doing in the creation narrative. In Moses' creation narrative, he is thumbing the nose at every uh, ancient myth around Hey, you know the heaven? You know the heavens, you know the sun, the moon, and the stars, you know those things that you think are God's? My God is God. He created all of it. You're nothing. See, we don't actually think Moses is picking a fight, but he is. And we can really see, based on the character of Paul, he's always picking a fight, sometimes with the church, but <laughs> he's always picking a fight, right? And so it's beautiful when you can zoom out and you can see what Paul is up to. So this celestial battle cry resonates through Ephesians 2, where Paul elaborates on Christ's Christ's victories over the oppressive powers that ensnare humanity. How many of you have ever read Ephesians and you're just like, wow, this would make a good fantasy film, right? It pictures this way. It's kind of like the book of Revelation. It's, It's intended to. Look this way. The pattern of divine warfare saturates this entire letter, unveiling the narrative's coherence beneath those theological themes. It's not all about theological themes, though, or not merely about those things. Again, Ephesians is not disjointed. It's not a theological discourse, but it's meticulously woven together together to tell a story of divine triumph. It's an apocalypse encapsulating by what is called inclusio framing uh, that marks the beginning and the end of Paul's argument. So for those of you who like to jump into the world of weird with me, inclusio framing devices are a literary technique where a passage or a text, is framed by similar or identical languages or themes at the beginning and the end, creating, if you will, a a structural kind of bookend, right? Uh, it, It creates a ring to it, an ecclusio. In the context of Ephesians, it refers to recurring elements, phrases, and themes that, again, bookend the main body of the letter. This device is used to emphasize and highlight specific ideas creating, ultimately, this huge, cohesive structure for Paul within the text as we go through this uh, Ephesians calls to us in some sense right Uh, and it calls to us to become communities of discernment and this is where I really want to push you as a church because a lot of times what happens is we come to church we put the car in park and by car I mean our brains we put the car in park We just let the words wash over us, we go home with no more information than we had when we started because we weren't listening, and then we wonder why we can't understand the Bible. I'm going to challenge you that what you need to do is exactly what Paul is calling you to be and do, and that is to become a community of discernment. Uh, A spirit of wisdom and revelation akin to the apocalyptic writers of old is invoked here on the audience. In Christian journey, uh, the the Christian journey set against the backdrop of the crossover of these ages, old and new, demands us look with discernment, especially about the paradoxes that we're dealing with. How is it that God's sovereign? How is it that, that evil still exists and does its thing? We have to carefully study and mine for meaning or we're going to miss the forest for the trees. Last week, I shared a message called Meaning Matters, and I shared with you these, this thing that I call the trinity of meaning, and that is that in life, we have three main components. We have information, we have knowledge, and then we have wisdom, but we need all of those in order to uncover or to discover meaning, Okay. We have run into a problem in the church in which we dive fully into this pursuit of information. And guess what happens with information? Information often begets arguments. My information says this. Well, my information says this. Well, your information's wrong. Well, mine's better. Mine's this guy. Mine's that guy. And we fight over information. And we actually believe in some weird way, we believe that we're going to get to heaven and God is going to give us some sort of weird quiz on the, the specifics of our belief, right? right? So, so we don't think we're saved by grace through faith. We think we're saved because we know that we're saved by grace through faith, right? So we got to take a test and give an answer to God, which is not exactly, uh, not in any way, what God is wanting. But that is an obsession with information, you take information, and then you put it into application, and you've got knowledge. How many of you know that you can take all the stuff in the world, know all the facts in the world, but unless you know how to work them, it's of no use, right? Right? We all know that person. I referred to it last week. It's the, it's the guy who's really good at trivial pursuit, but can't, you know, keep a job down, right, <laughs> okay, right, so we, we all know this, that's information, and then there's knowledge, knowledge comes when, or wisdom comes when we have right information, right application of knowledge, and then we begin to change from fools into people of God, we, we lose the foolishness of our lives, right, The Christian journey is a pursuit of losing that foolishness. In order to lose that foolishness, we have to understand God's word. We cannot come in here and put it in park. We cannot read our Bible and go, hey, I got three minutes in today. I guess I got brownie points with God. You didn't. You didn't. It doesn't make any sense to do that that way. How many of you like to listen to your Bibles? How many of you like to listen to your Bibles? I love to listen to the Bible. It's an awesome thing. How many of you have ever listened to, I'll just go beyond the Bible here. How many of you have ever listened to a Bible or an audiobook and you've gotten uh, 10 minutes in and realized you weren't paying any attention? More people raise their hands, which means you were lying to the first question. Anyway, so this is really, I knew I'd catch you someday, but here's the point, right? Here's the point. You go 10 minutes, you're like, crap, what was I listening to? And then you rewind it. And you listen to it again. How many of you have gone 10 more minutes and still didn't pay attention to it? Yeah, Ryan told me he does this all the time. Anyway, right? So so it's, it's a problem, right? We do this with church. We come to church. We listen. We go home. We go, crap, I don't remember what was said. I have no idea. It's not good, okay? It's not good. We need to engage with this discerning spirit. The call to cultural criticism, which is what we're being called to, emerges as a pivotal theme with any kind of apocalyptic literature. It's reminiscent of what C.S. Lewis uh, admonished people to do to cultivate a shrewd, he would say, a shrewd and critical vision of the world. He wasn't asking everybody to be pessimists. He just wanted everybody to look at it honestly. How many of you know you need to look at the world honestly? Honestly. Yes, you need to look at the world honestly. Ephesians implores each one of us to scrutinize the cultural patterns that we live in, tainted by what? The old life, the old world, the old powers, right? And so we have to criticize, we have to scrutinize those patterns, and we have to recognize the perversion that is there in every facet of life and even in thought. And then the epistle challenges believers to resist that, right? To resist those odd patterns and to pull towards what? Pull away from destructive patterns towards actively engaging in God's way of living. Guess what that is, church? Wisdom. It's losing foolishness and becoming wise. The whole book of Ephesians is calling us to this. And Paul does it through the most fanciful writing that I think anybody expected out of Paul. Or didn't expect, rather. In the days of this letter to the Ephesians, the Artemis cult held significant influence in the city of Ephesus. The Artemis cult centered around the worship of the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana in Roman mythology. Ephesus was renowned for its grand temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In one of the the messages in this series, uh, we will share with you just the sheer size of that temple uh, in comparison to other structures that we all know, it was a very significant piece in the world. Culturally, the Artemis cult had found uh, had profound effect, rather, on the people of Paul's day. The Temple of Artemis was a major religious center, a major economic hub. It attracted pilgrims and traders from all over, and the cult contributed to the city's prosperity. So. Without any understanding of Ephesians, what's it going to do if you bring in a religion that says that's nonsense? You get it. There's a lot of challenges that are going on here, and it's going to create pain for them. Well, what is what happens when you inflict pain? Or let's put it in its actual context: What happens when you infi- inflict financial trouble on people? They panic. That's exactly what happens in Ephesus. They don't like this this infliction of pain because what is going to happen is you have to to leave this. You have to leave your occult practices. You have to leave your magic. You have to leave your books. You have to leave your idols. You got to walk away from it all, and that's going to create fighting and, and chaos. The cult contributed again to the prosperity through commerce related to all those pilgrimages, And the religious practices associated with Artemis involved elaborate rituals, festivals, processions, shaping daily life, including nights of debauchery and drunkenness that were always going, okay? It's a very different world than what we're used to. Well, maybe if you live in I don't know, Sin City or something, right? The Artemis cult also had social implications, influencing uh, the fabric, the cultural fabric, rather, of Ephesus. Devotees participated in ceremonies that emphasized the power and the protection of Artemis. So this sounds a lot like God up against the prophets of Baal in the Old Testament, doesn't it? It fosters a sense of community among the followers. So all these people were really tight-knit. And now... Paul is coming in and saying, this is the truth, and we want to invite you to this family. It's a big change for them. The prominence of the Artemis cult likely contributed to a particular worldview, and especially a moral framework, and Paul goes in and starts fighting against that. It impacts the way individuals perceive their roles inside of the community, and it put them looking towards what God would have as a divine order for families and for structures in life. With the introduction of Christian teachings in Ephesus, including the letter to the Ephesians, there was a clash between the prevailing Artemis cult and the emerging Christian community, and the Christian message challenged all those religious norms, all of them. It called for a shift in allegiance from pagan deities to Yahweh. Uh, This cultural and religious tension is reflected in the broader context of Ephesians, as well as some things we read in the book of Acts. Living in the time between, listen to me clearly, living living in the time between the cross and the day of Christ, which we'll be exploring as well in this series, requires not only theological understanding and acumen, but it requires you understand the landscape of the day. Ephesians is going to invite us to become cultural critics, to acknowledge uh, the perversions, the expressions, and it's going to urge us towards what again, church? Wisdom over foolishness. That's what God is calling us to. We find again the echoes of C.S. Lewis in this idea. Uh, Because what Lewis would say is that this was the role of the artist, of the novelist, of the musician, and the gifts that they had. What were they to do with those gifts? They were to unveil the pretensions dominating the experience. They were to open windows of truth and reality and shine a light on things. Most of us misunderstand art in today's world. We misunderstand writing. We misunderstand music. All of these things have been reduced to mere entertainment in our world. Unless you're the world, listen to me, listen to me. Unless you're the world, the world still paints paintings, writes plays, cultivates movies, and writes songs that intend to do what? Shift the culture. The second you bring it up, everybody around you says you're a conspiracy theorist, but they're the only people who actually understand what they're doing. And the Christian world sits back and goes, let's write another worship song. And why? Because, well, we need more money, right? And that's it. And we miss missed the point. We have no idea what we're moving. It was during the 70s and the 80s where Christian music was was budding in some sense on the scene where Christian writers were actually poking the bear of culture. They They were really ready to make everybody mad. Today, we're just like, come Lord Jesus, come. Come Lord Jesus, come. It's not what music is for. It's not what art is for. It's not what all these things are for in that sense. We actually have tools to keep this polemic, this fight going. Oh, but we're Christians. Aren't we supposed to be peace-loving? Except for when it comes to the devil, right? We're not his buddy, are we? I sure hope not, right? So what we're called to do is actually become cultural critics right we're we're to we're to use the gifts that god has given us whether that's an artist a novelist a musician or what have you and you are called to shed light into the darkness our dual existence in two realms simultaneously underscores the consistent nature of our identity we are flesh and we are spirit We have all of this going. Ephesians paints this vivid picture of living in hostile territory. We've been drop-shipped right into the world, right? The world has been hijacked by dark forces, yet in the process of divine reclamation. We're being reclaimed, church. Did you know that? You're being reclaimed. Yeah, but why do bad things happen to good people? Because you're being reclaimed. Bad things are going to continue to come. But who's over you? Who's in control of you? Who loves you? Who will never leave you nor forsake you, church? The very Jesus Paul is declaring. The very Jesus who Paul says is above all powers and all dominions and all authorities. The people of God are called to resist harmful ways of life, recognize the relentless pull into destructive patterns, and foster lifestyles that embody wisdom and not foolishness. Do you know how confusing it is to me when my daughters, when I tell them something that is wise for them to do, and they choose not to do it? Do you know how confusing or frustrating that is to me? Oh, it's infuriating. It's infuriating, right? Guess how much my parents still have to deal with that with me? Here's the problem, guys. It doesn't just go away overnight. It's an active pursuit at all times in life. Simple, honest questions. Question, how many of you still do stupid things? I swear if you don't raise your hand. Come on, Curtis. Gosh, he's like, I don't do stupid things. (laughs) Do what? (laughs) Wow, I'm going to talk to Jane afterwards. But anyway, okay, so, right? But, right, We we all do stupid things. It's an active pursuit of changing, right? We're always doing this. Every day, foolishness to wisdom, foolishness to wisdom, foolishness to wisdom, because we're being redeemed, we're being reclaimed. And we're going to face trouble, but we're still being reclaimed. To faithfully read Ephesians is not merely to, again, gather data. It's not to create a systematic theology, uh, but instead it's to immerse ourselves in a compelling vision of the life-giving roles within this cosmic drama that each one of us play. We're all called to it, right? We're all called to the greatest of salvations in Christ Jesus. And as we go through this weird stage of divine warfare and discernment, Ephesians is going to actually invite us to embrace our roles as participants, not only in the home, not only in the workplace, but actually on that battlefield as participants in God's polemic, in in God's argument, asserting and defending his sovereign victory over the forces that seek to destroy the creation. So here's how we wrap up today. The book of Ephesians unfolds as this celestial drama. It invites you to grapple with cosmic tensions and divine warfare, and it calls you to discernment. You can't put your mind in park. Ephesians is going to beckon you to embrace your role in God's war here, resisting cultural distortions, embodying God's redemptive power inside this world that is always being bombarded by hostile forces. It's not going to change until Jesus returns, okay? This role requires wisdom. It's a call to wisdom. It is a higher order. As I taught last week in that message on the Trinity of Meaning, Christian wisdom, that's what our aim is in all things. That's what's going to give us the answer to life's deepest questions. What am I here for? We need to be asking God. We need to be seeking wisdom. We need to understand. It may not be some grand storyline that you're a part of. What am I called to? God has called me to be the first female astronaut to go to Mars. It may not be something as cool as that. It might be, Heaven forbid, it might be God has called you to be a mom. And then what are you to do in that role? To honor him and to be wise every day. You know what that does? It actually takes the enemy out in ways that you can't even fathom. It is a battle plan and a strategy that the devil can't stop. And it's amazing. And you and I are called to this new reality. So, as we conclude today, I want to leave you with the Apostle Paul's prayer for each one of us. The the people he was writing to, whether specific or general, but definitely something that applies to all of us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. Here's what the Apostle Paul prays. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same as the mighty strength which raised Christ.